So Victoria and I, uh, we met actually at the Cheesecake Factory. Um, we didn't just bump into each other, we weren't there. Um, I was a server for a long time. And there was all different kinds of crowds of people that would come to the restaurant. You know, there was the Tuesday night people, and they were different from the Thursday night people, they were different from the Friday night people. Like the Friday night people, usually, you know, you see people having their first date, and you can always tell. <laughs> Spicy, yes. <laughs> well, awkward, yes. Um, you can always tell when someone's on a first date. Um, and then you had the Saturday night people who were just looking to have a good time. And the worst universally known shift to work was Sunday brunch. That was like the one shift every server knew was going to be terrible because the people were going to be more rude, they were going to tip worse, and they were going to have higher expectations. And it was uh, people who were coming from church. They were the worst tippers, they were the least friendly, they would talk down to us, and it was a well-known thing that Sunday brunch was the worst shift to work because church people weren't kind people. And it didn't bother me at first, but then I became a believer. And so I'm trying to like share Jesus a little bit at work and I'm trying to figure out what that means. And it was so discouraging to me that my fellow church people weren't representing themselves well. And all of the servers would get together and they would crowd around and they would laugh because someone would leave a gospel track with their check, but not leave a tip. And that was devastating for me. That these believers were playing into these harmful stereotypes and they were hurting the gospel, they were hurting the word. That's kind of what we're gonna see tonight in Titus. So we've been working our way through the book of Titus. Titus is in the New Testament, you can turn there. We're gonna be in chapter two of Titus. Titus chapter two, Titus is T-I-T-U. S, it's in the New Testament. It's not actually a book, it's a letter, and it was written by a man named Paul. And Paul was writing to a young man named Titus. And Paul was writing because he was concerned about the believers in the town, in the city, on the island that Titus lived. And there was an island called Crete, it was a Greek island. And he was worried about the faith of the believers there because believers were saying that they believed one thing, but then they were acting a completely different way. They were saying they wanted to follow Jesus, but they looked like they were following Zeus instead. And because the believers in Crete weren't acting the way that Jesus wanted them to act, like he tells believers to act, the gospel wasn't spreading because they were looking different. And so Paul's writing Titus and he's uh, encouraging him in this letter. Today, we're gonna see that Paul is writing to Titus about some specific behaviors in groups of people that were happening at that time. And so we're gonna unpack the behaviors by demographic. Then we're gonna see what's so important. Like why would we need to change our behavior? Why should we avoid falling into these harmful stereotypes? And then lastly, we're gonna see how can we do that? So the first thing is we're gonna look at the behavior. Then we're gonna see who cares, why do we wanna have change our behavior? And then we're gonna see how we can change our behavior. So open up to Titus chapter two. So Titus chapter two, beginning in verse one, I'm reading through verse 14, which says, but as for you, so this is Paul speaking to Titus. He says, as for you, 
teach what accords with sound doctrine, which is older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, in steadfastness. Older women likewise are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good, and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works, and in your teaching, show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned, so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Bondservants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, which means stealing, but showing all good faith so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. The main idea that we're going to see tonight is control yourself because of the gospel. Control yourself because of the gospel. Let's jump right in and look at behavior. The first demographic of people that Paul addresses here is older men. Look in verse 2. It says, Older men are to be sober minded. Dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. The picture here is that older men are not to be reactionary. They're to be smooth, steady, not angry, not flying off the handle, not tossed to and fro. But that older men are supposed to be steady. You know, I never feel like such a young man as when I'm talking to an older man. I teach youth fifth and sixth sometimes, and every once in a while, a fifth grader will come up to me, and they'll come running up to me, and they'll be like, I'm so stressed. And I go, okay, you know, what are you stressed about? And they'll be like, well, I gotta get my homework done by Monday, and if I don't get my homework done by Monday, I can't play on the football team, and if I can't play on the football team, I'm not gonna go to college, if I don't go to college, I'm gonna ruin my life, and it's just gonna be a disaster, and they're so hyped, and they're so scared. And I, you know, I listen, and I nod wisely, you know, nod wisely. <laughs> and I go, you know what? I think it's going to be all right. I think God can help you with that. And then they look at me and they roll their eyes and they go, that's not helpful. <laughs> and they scamper off. I'm like, okay. But then when I'm talking to an older man and I've got my stressors and the things that I think are urgent that I have to take care of right now, and I go talk to an older man and I go, here's all the stuff that I got going on that's really important I got to take care of right now. And they look at me and they nod <laughs> wisely, wisely, wiselier. They nod wiser. And they say, you know, I think it's gonna be okay. I think God can help you with that. And then I roll my eyes, I'm like, oh, it's not super helpful. But that's the picture of what older men are to do 
or younger people is to be steady and not be tossed to and fro. You know, older men here and older men at Fireside, we need you. We need you. You know, it, it grieves me. Um, when I talk to older men sometimes, they say to me, you know, well, I want to connect with younger people, but I don't know what to, I don't know how to relate to them. I'm too old. I've gone through too much. I don't have a TikTok. <laughs> I don't have a landline. Like, I can't relate to young people. I don't know what to do. My encouragement, older men, is that we, myself, and men younger than me, we don't need you to make TikToks. Amen to that. <laughs> <laughs> You're not even old enough, Kevin. What are you doing? <laughs> But we do need you, because only you can come alongside us and put your hand on our shoulder and look in our eyes and say with experience that God is gonna see you through it. Because you've lived it. You've lived the ups and the downs, and you can look back and you have the experience to see how God has been faithful through it all. We need you, older men. What's it say about older women? Take a look in Verse three, it says older women likewise are to be reverent in behavior. So like the older men, they're to be dignified. Not slanderers or slaves to much wine. So why is Paul talking about that? Why is he bringing up those two specific things? Well, at that time in that culture in Crete back then, there was a stereotype of older women who would be like, that they were all gossips and, and drunks. It's kind of like today we have like wine moms. <laughs> like it's kind of it's a similar type of stereotype you know the real housewives team like like well, that whole stereotype of older women just gossips <laughs> slaves to wine and so Paul is addressing that that specific concern so he says don't be like that instead I want you older women uh, I want you to teach what is good and so train the young women to love their husbands and children that seems a little strange like why would an older woman need to teach a younger woman how to love her husband? Why does somebody have to learn that? I think a piece of that is remember that at that culture, in that time, you didn't, the woman typically didn't get to choose who her husband was. Um, it was usually like an arranged kind of marriage, and maybe you didn't even know them that well. And so learning how to love this stranger was actually a really valuable um, thing to learn. So does that mean that it's obsolete? So older women, does that mean we don't need you anymore to teach younger women about how to love their husbands because now we have dating and engagement and we have that whole premarital counseling, we don't need you anymore? You know, I actually think that the need has never been greater. Older women, we need you. Open up your phone, turn on the TV, watch Netflix, Look at social media, and you're going to see hundreds and hundreds of terrible examples and lies about what it means to love your husband and what it means to love your children. I think the need is greater than ever for you to help younger women learn how to love their husbands and love their children. That's something that only you can do. That's something that a man will never be able to do in the same way. Because I can open up and I can teach what God says about those things, but only you can look a woman in the eyes and share the scars and the lessons and the hardships that you've learned through marriage and raising children, and that is needed and so valuable. Younger women, 
You're to be trained to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, and submissive to your own husband. I'm willing to bet that three of those things you were okay with. <laughs> I'm willing to bet that you heard self-controlled, you go, okay. Kind, sure. Pure, why not? <laughs> but there were a couple, there were two things that may have been a little harder for you to swallow. It says, working at home and submissive to your husband. Before I jump into that, I want to acknowledge something. That this verse has been used incorrectly in an abusive way for a long time. My encouragement to you is, don't let man's misuse of God's word, taking it out of God's meaning and his context, prevent you from hearing what God wants to say through it. It's very important. God does have something to say, but I do want to acknowledge that, that this has been taken out of context and used as a weapon on women for a long time. So what does God mean when he says that? He says to, um, to work at home. Now that doesn't mean that you can't work outside of the home. And we know that because in Proverbs chapter 31, God gives us a picture of a godly woman, a woman, and she's industrious and hardworking. She's a property owner. She makes things and sells things in the marketplace. We know that it doesn't mean that you have to only work at home, but what it does mean is that there's work to be done at home. And what was happening back then at that time on the island of Crete was that the men were going to work, and while they were at work, the women weren't taking care of their home, they weren't taking care of their children. They were being neglectful of their families. And so Paul's saying that there's work for you to do at home. Don't be neglectful of your children and your families because um, while your husband is doing his work, there's work for you to do at your home to take care of your family. Now, submissive to your own husband is another one of those sticky phrases. And I think a big part of that is, is we, we misuse the context. Paul is not speaking to husbands. He's not saying to husbands, make sure your wives are submissive. That's really significant because back then that would have been totally normal, totally acceptable for someone to say, make sure your wife is submissive and do whatever it takes to make her that way. But Paul doesn't say that. He's talking to women and he says that they need to choose to submit themselves to their husband. The picture here is that the word submit is never used as a weapon or an enforcement on somebody else. But he's saying women choose to submit to your husbands. Now that very word submit is something we're uncomfortable with. In our culture, the word submit has connotations with it that mean like you're not as good. Like if I submit to someone, it means I'm not as good. I'm weak, I've given up, they're better than me. But we know that that's not what God is saying, because in Ephesians chapter 5, Paul wrote another letter to a church in Ephesus, and he talks about how wives are to submit to their husbands, but also husbands are to submit to their wives. And we know that that's not what God is saying, because in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 28, Paul wrote another letter to a church in Corinth, and the same word submit is used to describe Jesus' relationship with God the Father. So 
So it says that Jesus submits to God the Father. A woman is an equal member of her home and of her marriage as much as Jesus is an equal member of the Trinity. It doesn't have anything to do with value or worth, but it does have to do with roles. The woman is to choose to submit to her husband so her husband can do the role of leading the family. But it has nothing to do with value or worth. So younger women are to be trained to show those characteristics. Young men, lads, you get off a little easy here. It says, uh, younger men likewise are to be uh, self-controlled. Verse six, likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. That's the same thing. Everybody else so far has been said, has been called to be self-controlled. And then what happens is we guess that Titus is probably a young man because Paul kind of pivots and he starts talking directly to Titus. So verse six, likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Then in verse seven, he's talking specifically to Titus. He says, show yourself in all respects. So Titus, show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works. And your teaching show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned. So what that's not saying is that every single young man needs to become a teacher. Take a deep breath. <laughs> Younger men, you're to be self-controlled, which means that you don't give in to the things that you want to do easily that are opposite of what God wants you to do. Doesn't mean you have to teach. But what this is saying is that if you're a young man here today and you do want to become a teacher, look at Titus to be your model on how to do that. Young men. Last group here is bond servants. Look at verse 9. Bond servants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They're to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith. So bond servant is another one of those sticky words. It's a word that means slavery. I want to quickly address that. Just two quick things. The first is that slavery back then looked very different than slavery does today in many parts of the world, or like it did in America's own history. So it looks very different. The other thing is that God never says that slavery is good. He never says that it's good. That's not what Paul's doing here. Paul is addressing a huge demographic of people that existed at that time. And what Paul is saying is that if you're a believing bondservant, you have to act a certain way. And the stereotype of bond servants back then was that they backtalked, they were lazy, and that they stole. So he's telling them that that's not the way for a believing bond servant, a follower of Jesus, is to act. <clears throat> so we went through a lot of demographics. Here's the big picture. Paul is saying that no matter what your socioeconomic status is, no matter what your gender is, no matter what your age is, no matter what your culture is, you're called to live like Jesus and not like the harmful stereotypes of the culture then or now. So why? Why is that important? This is the second part. Why is that so important? We're going to do this one quick. It's one verse. Look at the end of verse 5. It's after he's talking to women. He says that the word of God may not be reviled. He said you have to act different and the rest of the culture, control yourself, don't become a negative stereotype, so that the word of God may not be reviled. Which means, if you don't look any different, you're going to reflect poorly on Jesus. I think 
The challenge here for us today is this. Is there something in your life that you're doing that looks less like Jesus does and looks more like a negative stereotype? I don't think I have to tell you what the negative stereotypes are about your age and your gender, your political affiliation, your beliefs. I don't think I have to tell you that, I think we know. But what I'm calling us to do is to take a hard, long look in the mirror with our Bibles open and ask ourselves, is there something that I'm doing that is pushing people away from Jesus when my call as a believer in Christ is to push people towards him? Maybe you're here and you're not yet a believer. Maybe you're not sure yet. Maybe it's been a while. Maybe you're tired of seeing people who claim to be Christians act in hurtful ways. Maybe you're tired of seeing people who are Christians be hypocritical, be hurtful, and not reflect Christ well. My hope and my prayer for you, if that's you, or if you've been hurt, um, is that you wouldn't let people, broken, sinful, awful people, prevent you from seeing the wonderful Jesus. Don't let hypocrites like me and sinners like me stop you from seeing how wonderful Jesus is because he's perfect and he will never let you down. Christians and people who say they're Christians are far from perfect and it's not even that we're per not perfect, we're not good, but Jesus is so good. So if you're here and you've been hurt and you're tired of those negative stereotypes, you turn on the TV and you see hurtful things, you see things that aren't what God would have his people do or act or say or believe, my hope for you is that you wouldn't let that distract you from Jesus as he's still good. What hope do we have? What hope do we have to change our behavior? Because if we just tried really hard, okay, Will, I hear you. I don't want to be a stereotype anymore. How do we do it? Let's see what he says in verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. Jesus Christ has come as a rescuer for every single person. He doesn't call us to be perfect people or good people. He's come as a rescuer for broken, sinful, hypocritical, stereotypical people. And what's our hope? We don't have any except that he trains us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives. Jesus Christ changes us and trains us to be people that are like him. And it's hard. It's hard. If you're a believer in the room, you know that. But there's going to become a day, here's the hope, there's going to be a day when we don't have to struggle with that anymore, with these sins that stick to us so tightly, 
Because sin is sticky. Maybe there's something in your life that's been clinging to you for a long time. You can't get rid of it. You try to shake it off. It still sticks to you. You focus on it. You try to pull it off. You try to be disciplined. And you try really, really hard. And it's tiring because you've been fighting the sticky sin that you cannot get free of. Here's the hope is that one day, our blessed hope is that Jesus Christ, our Savior, is going to come back. And we won't have to fight anymore. We're going to be made perfect. But in the meantime, he purifies us. He removes that sticky sin. He helps us. And here's the thing. This is really important. And I'm almost done. And I was debating on whether or not to share this. But I think it's so important. I can't tell you how many times I sit down with people. And they tell me, well, I've been struggling with the same thing for a long time over and over again. And no matter how hard I try, no matter how disciplined I am, no matter how much I read my Bible or pray, I just can't stop doing this thing. You will never get free from your sin by looking at your sin. It's too sticky. You can't do it. Jesus Christ is the one who purifies us. He makes it possible. If you've just been beating yourself up over and over again by something you can't get free of, Jesus Christ is the one who purifies us. Look to him. Pursue him. Learn more about him. Spend time with him. He's the one who can give you freedom from that. But here's the key. Don't miss this. Because if you're stuck in a place where you're just stuck in your sin, and you keep doing it over and over again, here's the hard truth. Is that there's some part of you, deep down maybe, that wants to do that. There's some part of you deep down that it satisfies something inside of you. That you believe the lie that that thing, that sin, that thing that's opposite of God is the only way to meet that need. Jesus Christ is the only one that can change our very desires. Do you see that at the end? He makes us people who are zealous for good works. He takes a people who are excited about sin and turns them into people that are excited about doing good things. That's something deep down that he does. So it's no longer a battle of discipline or self-control or effort. It's something that if you focus and pursue him and lean on his strength, his wisdom, you don't even want to do that old stuff anymore. He sets you free from it. And he makes you people that want to do good things. Believers, it's critical that we lean on Jesus Christ. We have no other hope, we have no other rescuer, we have no other thing that makes us good at all, except for Jesus. And it's critical that we don't become harmful, hurtful stereotypes, that we have control over ourselves because of what Jesus has done for the sake of Jesus' name. There are 70,000 people in Scotia, Glenville, and Burnt Hills that don't know Jesus yet. We must be people that aren't hypocrites or hurtful stereotypes. And that begins with us on our knees before Jesus asking him to help us. Let's pray.